The reality was that obviously I'd been taken as a monk here and the Bank of Thailand raised interest rates at the next meeting. They didn't cut them and the BART strengthened. So this is a very good example of saying never listen to what central bankers are saying. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter, where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with Michael Howell. Michael, are you ready to join the mission? Andrew, absolutely. Yeah. Pleased to be on board. I'm excited to learn from you. And I want to introduce you to the audience. Michael is CEO of Cross Border Capital, a London based FCA registered independent research and investment company that he founded in 1996. The firm provides asset allocation and capital markets advice to institutional investors and manages a billion US dollars. Michael, just take a moment and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. Well, I think the, the starting point's got to be research. We're a research-led firm. We believe fundamentally in understanding what drives markets ultimately. And that really comes down to two things, supply and demand, like any market. And the major factor that is driving global asset markets in terms of that supply-demand paradigm is the flow of liquidity in the world. And we do a deep dive on a weekly and a monthly basis to try and understand money flows around the world. Essentially, we're following the money, and that's mm. key. You know, before we get into that, I'm just curious, like, to look at your background and the things that you've done over the years. To start kind of an independent research type of operation in 1996 was kind of way ahead of its time when you think about what was going on at that time as far as brokers were expanding around the world. I was working for a company called WI Car. I was working for a company called Peregrine in those days. I was working for Asia Equity in those days in Asia. Those were the brokers that we were, you know, and we were providing free research. Why would you go mm. to an independent research provider when you could get it free from a broker? And then many years later, the European Union and all of its wisdom came up with, uh, what was that thing Mifid? that came up? Yeah. MIFID, supposed to bring us, you know, a whole new world of protections and research and all that, which seemed to kind of collapse independent research. So I'm just curious, like, how did you get into independent research and how did you stay and build a business out of that? Okay, I think the, the short answer is that if you go back to the mid to late 1990s, what you were seeing was in that bull market, there was a tremendous appetite for stock investment but there was already a lack of asset allocation advice and people were effectively investing without context. And what we were trying to bring to the party was to say, look, we're, we've got an expertise in understanding how markets work from a top-down perspective. You can, you, know, you can punt around in different investments, different stocks, but you've really got to have that context. You've got to understand where money is moving around the world. And the Federal Reserve is clearly important in this equation. The Bank of Japan then was particularly important in that picture. What was happening in currency markets, all these things were major features. And if you go back to that period, in fact, very shortly after we started, there was the Asian financial crisis. 
And then we moved on to uh, long-term capital, the catastrophe there in 1998. Mm. And in actual fact, I mean, as an anecdote, we my background was coming out of Salomon Brothers, the US investment bank, which many people may recall was the world's biggest fixed income trading house and Forex trader worldwide. And long-term capital actually evolved out of Salomon Brothers. I come from Salomon Brothers, long-term capital clients of ours. In the summer of 1998, I can remember in their offices in Greenwich in the US, pouring over a series of charts that we were putting forward to them saying, if you look at all these indexes, liquidity conditions are collapsing worldwide. And David Mullins, who was an ex-chair of the Fed or ex-deputy chair of the Fed, was on their board and he was sitting around the table. And I looked, I saw them all looking pretty puzzled, not saying anything at all, and sort of scratching their heads. And little I know the sort of degree of positioning they had in these markets. But the fact was, you were seeing this sort of common equation of liquidity falling around the world, not just in the Asian markets, but it was becoming a global phenomenon. And as we later saw, it was uh, an Asian crisis spilled over into Brazil, into Russia, right across the world. Yeah, it's interesting because when I I started in 93 as a as a sell-side analyst, so I was covering a group of stocks. And for a lot of people at that time, we didn't think about those global issues that much. I mean, there were thematic things and there were trends that were happening and stuff. But generally, you know, a lot of people look at stocks and they think, okay, yeah, they like this one, I like that one. But then they miss the big picture. I'm just curious, let's talk a little bit about what's happening. I mean, we saw an unprecedented amount of liquidity pumped into the system in the US. Now that's coming down and, you know, all kinds of crazy things are going on with interest rates and all this. I'm just, what is your update on the way you're looking at liquidity and flows these days around the world? Okay, well, the first thing to to recall is that there is a, a liquidity cycle. And we've got a fir- the first question that any investor needs to ask is, where are we in that liquidity cycle? And what you've got to try and anticipate to a large degree is what the cycle is going to look like maybe in six or 12 months time. Because making money out of investments is not looking today at what the environment is, is looking at what it's likely to be in coming months. Financial markets are forward discounting mechanisms, after all. And that's question number one. Mm. Our view is that we're, we've passed the trough of the liquidity cycle. Liquidity conditions are still very tight. There's no question about that. But the focus we have is very much on looking not at interest rates. Interest rates are, are very much a, a misguided thing to look at in many ways. They're not a measure of monetary tightness or looseness. What you've got to actually look at is the flow of liquidity in the system. Now, I think the easiest way to try and explain what the issues really are here are that if you look at capital markets globally, with the huge amount of debt that is in the system, they have become not new financing vehicles, but refinancing vehicles. And that's an absolutely key point. So in other words, there's $350 trillion of debt in the world with an average maturity of around about five years. Now, simple math says you've got to refinance, therefore, $70 trillion of debt every year in capital markets. To refinance debt without there being a refinancing crisis, you need liquidity. What liquidity is, is balance sheet capacity within the financial system. You need that capacity. If you don't get that capacity, you've got a refinancing crisis. Now, that's what we've had many, many, many times in the last 20 years or so. These things have been refinancing crises. What we're getting now is a refinancing crisis. Look at what's going on in the banks. Many economists say, look, 
hey, look, there's a credit crunch. This isn't a credit crunch. This is a funding crunch. It's very different. And you can see that in the sense that the increase in interest rates has not hit the borrowers. It's actually hit the financial intermediaries, the banks, the lenders. They're the ones that are struggling. So this is all about funding. And so it ultimately comes back to the monetary authorities, the Federal Reserve et al., to put more liquidity into the system, which we can come back to. But I think what I want to do is to put this into context to say, Mm. look, if you pick up an economics textbook or a finance textbook, what it says is that interest rates are really the thing that matters. Now, in a world where there's lots of capital expenditure, I'll come quietly and say, okay, that's probably true because you're comparing a return on capital with a cost of capital. And okay, if you get a green light, then you invest. That's fine. But that's not the world we're in anymore. We're not doing a lot of CapEx. We're doing a lot of debt refinancing. And in a world of debt refinancing, it's balance sheet capacity, not interest rates. Capital markets globally, in terms of new capital raise, raise about $10 trillion a year. The refinancing pot is about 70. So for every $1 that's transacted in financial markets for new capital raise, there are seven in terms of refinancing. And that's why liquidity, in a nutshell, is so important to monitor. And And that's why central banks have got to get a grip of this. And that's where what we're seeing in, let's take what's happening in the U.S., and right now, what we've seen is, you know, there's a lot of pressure on deposits and people are a little bit nervous and they're moving money in the money market and other accounts. Maybe you're seeing the banks having to liquidate a little bit of their assets to get the funding needed to repay those depositors and the Fed's helping them along by allowing them to pledge their treasury securities at basically par and kind of holding the losses there and allowing them not to realize them. Is that enough or do we see that it just continues to be a liquidity crunch or what what is your view on that well as i said we're at the low point of the liquidity cycle after central banks have tightened for what 15 months and we're seeing the consequences of that bear in mind that financial markets are forward looking so they're likely to feel the pain long before the real economies do and in actual fact financial markets tend to recover pretty much in the midst of recessions. In our view, the recession has probably already started. It's a number of months old. Many people don't realize that yet, but I think you can start to feel the pain if you look at certain economic indicators. That's pretty clear. Financial markets are struggling, if you like, right now, but they're starting to get some traction. And they're getting traction because what we saw back in October of last year was an inflection in this global liquidity cycle. Now, the trigger for that was paradoxically the British guilt crisis. The guilt edge crisis, as people may recall, was a situation that occurred when a new prime minister and chancellor came into Britain and announced a mini budget, which was effectively shaking up the fiscal arithmetic in the UK. And the UK government bond market, the sovereign bond market, sold off. Now, that was a big shock. Okay, It was a big shock for the UK insurance and pension industries. But it was also a wake-up call for central banks globally. Had that same event occurred in the US Treasury market, which is at the core of global financial markets, we would have had a financial crisis worldwide, probably on par with 2008. But it didn't happen because with some alacrity, the US authorities moved. And if you look at what happened in the markets around that time, you'll see that Fed liquidity injections which had been going down very aggressively, began to flatline and 
actually, as of now, they're rising again. So that's creating more money in the money markets, and it's actually easing the strains. And what you saw was, if you recall, again, at the time, Janet Yellen, US Treasury Secretary, basically warned about how nervous she was about the US Treasury market. Bond volatility, if anyone is sort of wonkish enough to look at bond volatility data, but there is an index called the Move Index, which measures volatility across the Treasury yield curve, which is akin to the VIX index for equities, that spiked dramatically. So that index is normally around about 80 on a measure. It went right up to 200. And it's starting to come down now quite significantly. And that is an indication that things are calming down. Now, collateral, in other words, the value of this pristine, this pristine collateral government debt is very important for credit creation in the world economy right now. Ever since 2008, and actually sometime before that, trusts have sort of gone out of the window. There is very little interbank lending on trust. Most of it now is collateralized lending. So you need a security of some value if you're going to get a loan of any form. And government or sovereign debt is really key to that. So if you start to see disruption in the in the sovereign debt markets, then you've got big warnings about liquidity cratering. What we're seeing now is the government or the sovereign bond markets are calming down. So what we've been saying to our clients is, look, don't worry about looking at the VIX index. Look at the move index. That's what really going to be what is important in terms of understanding your investments. That's where the risk lies. If the move index spikes and collateral values become undermined, then you're going to see a much, much bigger liquidity squeeze than we're getting. At the moment, that liquidity cycle is beginning to pick up, partly because the Fed is inching in more liquidity for the reasons you said, to help bail out various regional banks, SVB, etc. You're seeing as well collateral values begin to improve and volatility, which will govern the haircuts to that collateral coming right down. And then a third thing is that the People's Bank of China, which is the second most important central bank in the world, has been increasing its liquidity injections pretty significantly since around November of last year. And what's happening in the euro dollar market these days? Is there a squeeze there or are we are we past that? Or what, what's your perception there? The euro dollar markets are a lot less important than they used to be 10 years ago. Okay. I'm not going to say they're unimportant, mm. but I think you've got to distinguish very clearly between new credit flows, in other words, banking flows in the euro dollar markets, which have been significantly curtailed. They're still large, but they've really haven't they haven't really grown substantially in the last decade from the futures markets, the euro dollar futures markets, which are huge in comparison and much more reflect hedging activity in sovereign bond markets. In other words, investors playing the yield curve. So I think you've got to draw that distinction. One is in terms of the credit availability is the euro traditional euro dollar markets. That's kind of been eclipsed now to a large extent by collateral pools. These tend to be more important in liquidity creation. But without any question, looking at the euro dollar, the traditional euro dollar futures, which by the way, is itself going to be changing because euro dollars are being, or LIBOR is being shifted out of the equation for in alternatives such as SOFA in the US. The traditional LIBOR is still a very important thing to look at. And just maybe we can wrap it up by just looking at the dollar and how does this stand? You talked about pristine collateral. We know U.S. Treasuries are the ultimate pristine collateral. You've also talked about the potential that we could be in a recession right now, like it's already happening. We've had 15 months of tightening, as you've said. 
And so one of the questions, I mean, when we see things get panicky, people tend to rush to the dollar. And, you know, then you've got this whole other side of people saying, oh, no, the dollar is going to fall apart because we're seeing BRICS and China and Russia coming together. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I, I should say, in fact, just to, to sort of finish the last point, maybe just in one one sentence, I don't think there's going to be a banking crisis or credit crisis this year. Policymakers are going to be too much onto this risk for the simple reason if there was, it would be a huge gift to China. Okay, mm. they would point to this to reflect the instability of Western financial markets, and it would basically it would underscore what they're trying to do as an alternative financial system to the dollar, which leads us neatly onto what's the outlook for the dollar. I think there are two things to say. One is the status of the dollar as the international means of settlement worldwide. That's more a qualitative or philosophical point. And the other is, what is the value of the dollar? What's the dollar going to do maybe in the near term? I think to on that latter point first, our view is that very simply, if you look at 2022 last year, policy could be summarized very clearly as getting the Federal Reserve balance sheet down and getting the dollar up. This year is much more about getting the Federal Reserve balance sheet up and the dollar down. Okay, So that's what I think is going on. And the dollar is, we think, in a medium-term bull market, but it will have a correction of about probably a further 10% this year. So from the peak of last year, you may be down 15% plus in terms of what the what the dollar is, uh, the dollar's trade-weighted value. So I think it's effectively adjusting in that uptrend. Now, part of the reason for thinking about an uptrend in the dollar is to understand the context of how the dollar acts as global means of settlement. And there's a lot of let's say, I think, mistaken analysis about what really drives global currencies. Many people have spoken about different alternatives like Bretton Woods 2, Bretton Woods 3, whatever it may be, okay? Actually, reality is we're still in Bretton Woods 1, okay? Things haven't changed. If you think of what was what really was Bretton Woods 1, Bretton Woods 1 was putting the dollar as the centerpiece of the international monetary system. It was having the World Bank and the IMF lease payments imbalances. Still, both of those, all those still occur. Thirdly, it was having the US military backstop the world trade system. That still exists. Now, as an adjunct to that, you may have said, well, okay, it was fixed exchange rates and it was capital controls, but essentially those weren't critical to the settlement. In time, it was always envisioned that you would see freedom of capital movement. And with freedom of capital movement, you ultimately had to have floating exchange rates. So let's not put floating exchange rates as the main driver here. The main driver is having the US dollar as the centerpiece, the means of settlement. Now, what does that really mean in essence? It doesn't mean simply denominating trade in US dollars. My analogy here would be to say, well, okay, if we switched to pricing in yuan, Chinese yuan, it's a little bit like saying, let's measure Fifth Avenue in kilometers not miles, would it be any longer? It's not. That's just the currency of denomination. That makes no difference. You've got a second level, which is important to understand, which is the payments mechanism. The payments mechanism would include trade credit is an important element. And that was actually how the US dollar became dominant right from 1915, where in actual fact, if you look at the history of this, in just as World War I began in 1914, 
the US dollar was traded in fewer centers than the Austro-Hungarian pengo. Okay, put it in context. No one's probably heard of the pengo, but it was bigger than the dollar in 1914. In 1915, the British were unable to sustain their monetary system or their credit system internationally. And so they stopped British banks lending overseas. And American banks came in and started to give trade credit. Within three years, the dollar was the dominant currency in world forex reserves. Okay, it was volatile. I mean, it went up and down after that. But that was really a statement to say from nowhere the dollar would become a big currency. And that was because of trade credit that US banks were then moving into that market. Clearly, China can move into that space. And that's, that's you know, an issue one's got one's to think about. Mm. But it's the third element, which is by far and away the most important, which China can never achieve. And that is acting as banker to the world. And what that really means is that if the world economy wants to save, they can save in US financial markets. And if the world economy needs dollars, US banks can provide them with that funding. Okay. Now, what you need for that role as banker to the world are deep financial markets and liquid and transparent financial markets. And you need a strong banking system that can effectively administer global credit and that it's trusted. How many of those box ticks can you do in China? Not that many. Mm. And that's really the issue. Are Chinese banks ever going to be international lenders? Are Chinese financial markets going to offer the depth that international investors require? And therefore, there may be hopes that the yuan can become a bigger currency. It will become a big currency, no question. But it's never going to shape the dollar in terms of this dominant role. US is running a large trade deficit. That is not a signal of US industrial uncompetitiveness. It's a signal of the super competitiveness and efficiency of US finance. And the only way that you stop the dollar being the dominant currency is if US finance trips up somehow. And I mean, a lot of people would say that, yeah, maybe, yeah, Chinese yuan's not going to be the replacement for the dollar. But if the US government keeps shooting itself in the foot through different things that they're doing, that it's just going to force countries to have to figure out another way, like bilateral trade without using the U.S. dollar in the middle or something like that. Is it possible that that the U.S. dollar slides in its dominance because of that, or that doesn't make sense either? In my view, it doesn't really make that much sense either. I mean, I think the, the fact is that if you take, I mean, let's take a, a large surplus economy like Saudi Arabia, okay? If Saudi Arabia has got a surplus, where is it going to invest that surplus? Is it able to invest, probably more to the point, is it willing to invest all its money in Chinese financial instruments? I think highly unlikely. And so, you know, once you start to think about how this could operate, then you start to realize that it's actually almost an impossible ask for China to rival the dollar in this way. Not to say that it would never get there, but in the foreseeable future, I'm talking here decades, it's extremely unlikely. And there may well be a case for arguing that the dollar becomes more dominant in the nearer term than actually less dominant. And I think that goes back to the fiscal arithmetic and the point you made. And it's clearly it's important that the US needs to, US Congress needs to think about some of the more futuristic themes here, such as digital currencies, such as, you know, not imposing a debt ceiling or not, you know, not having the debt ceiling problem, let's say, every five or 10 years or whenever these things arise. These are issues which clearly mean a lot for international investors. 
But at the end of the day, the dollar is in a dominant position, and it's very, very difficult to shake that out. And that was something that was implanted in 1944 in the Bretton Woods Agreement. Mm. Well, that's a fascinating discussion and definitely helps all of us think about this. I know you've also written a book, Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity, which is available on Amazon. And I'm going to have a link to that in the show notes. I think I've come over the years to really realize that flow of funds, particularly in little markets like Thailand, where I am, it can make a huge difference. It can be much more powerful than looking at the value of a particular individual stock as an example. So for those people that want to learn more about it, that's definitely one place to go is to get into the book and then also follow you everywhere you are. Is it, What would be the best place for people to, to follow you or learn more about what you're talking about? First thing, Andrew, would be to say a website, which is crossbordercapital.com. Yep. We've got a Twitter handle, which is crossbordercap that I often tweet on. Mm-hmm. And there's also a LinkedIn site. So there's lots of opportunities or openings for people to connect. Now, after such an intelligent conversation, my listeners may ask themselves, how could a man such as this make a mistake in investing? And now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay, well, I think that there is a list of, a long list of mistakes that I could cite. But I think that, you know, one of the one of the interesting things I think to maybe kick off with is to say, look, one of the things that I've often learned in markets is where there's a tip, there's a tap, okay? Meaning that I've never made money out of tips and it's really difficult to do that consistently. And the reason for that is that tips don't have context. And what you need to do is to think of investments, not speculations. But if you think of investments, you've got to start thinking about the context and really getting the macro call right. Now, if I think of the biggest errors that I've made, it's basically those areas. It's ignoring that macro. And I can give you actually one, I can give you two, I can give you several. One, for example, was in actual fact in Thailand. And we used to do a lot of, when I was at Bearings, we used to go around, obviously we were big in the region in the late 1980s, 1990s. And going around the central banks was an important thing to understand, particularly as you recall, with large capital flows winging their way into and out of markets. And you were beginning to see, even around the mid-1990s, evidence of some of these economies actually beginning to overheat and there being a problem. Now, we had a lot of discussions with central bankers. And one of those meetings, I think it was in early 1995, with was the governor of the Bank of Thailand. And I remember him saying to me sort of, almost sort of secretly, but sort of quite candidly, you know, our upcoming interest rate decision next week you know, we're going to cut interest rates. I thought, well, okay, that's, you know, an interesting point. Maybe he, what he wants me to do is to actually use this information and try and let people know so it's not a shock that interest rates are going to be cut, okay? Now, actually, in context, that was a crazy decision to make, okay, for the simple reason that Thailand was already overheating. The Chinese had previously devalued the renminbi I think, if I recall, you may remember better than me, by about 30% or so in the summer of the previous year. So you're looking at a big shakeup going on in Asian currencies. And what's more, you were starting to see the Japanese yen beginning to strengthen quite significantly. So the idea of cutting interest rates was actually a red rag 
to the Thai baht, and the Thai baht should be falling. Mm. What was the reality? The reality was that obviously I've been taken as a mug here, and the Bank of Thailand raised interest rates at the next meeting. They didn't cut them, and the baht strengthened. So this is a very good example of saying, never listen to what central bankers are saying, okay? Look at the numbers. Look at what the underlying backdrop is. Don't listen to the gossip. Where there's a tip, there's a tap. You've got to look at context. Now, I can go on and say these macro themes are very important to understand. Another example is to think about ignoring currencies and think of the huge gyrations and I've already cited the Japanese yen, but think of what the Japanese yen did. In 1990, at the time of the bubble, the yen currency was 150 yen dollar. And some of your listeners may recall the history of the of why the yen has its value. And it goes back to, I may be telling you a story you already know, but when the yen was first floated after World War II, or first reinstated after World War II, the US administration was thinking about what exchange rate do we start with because this economy has been devastated by the war. And so somebody pointed out to the US administration that the word yen in Japanese means circle. Well, there are 360 degrees in a circle. So there were 360 yen to the dollar. So for a long time, the yen was 360 to the dollar. And through the 1980s, as the Japanese economic miracle really unfolded, the yen got stronger and stronger. And basically, it appreciated and it got to about 150 in 1990 at the time of the bubble. Actually, the reality is it should have got even stronger. And then you look at what happened by 1995, the yen got to 80. So it effectively doubled again in value. So you can see these effects have absolutely dramatic effects on economies and financial markets. Think how much they squeeze Japanese profits. Think what they do to the Japanese bond market and underlying inflation. These things matter hugely. By I think it was then again, if you go from the 1995 low of around 80, by year 2000, I think you were back at 150 again for yen dollar. So these are whopping great movements in currencies, which really need to be thought about. And one of the things that I've often seen being in markets for a long time is that analysts are always about 12 months behind in understanding the effect on earnings of currency swings. Big currency appreciations destroy earnings and currency devaluations boost earnings. Mm. So I think that's another example of saying, yeah. you know, these are good examples. And then if I finish on this point in terms of worst investments, and that comes down to again looking at Japan and maybe Eurozone or the European markets in the context of a macro call on equity markets. And that's looking at PE multiples. Now, PE multiples work very well at the individual stock level, but they certainly don't work at the macro level. And that's very important for people to understand and realize. It took me a number of years to realize that, but it's absolutely invaluable advice. Don't buy a market with a low PE multiple because you think it's cheap because that tells you a lot more about the liquidity background or about the positioning of investors, which may be structural features of the markets. And let me give you examples. In 1980, the PE multiple on the Japanese market was 20 times earnings. Okay, At the same time, in the US, the PE multiple was nine times. Mm -hmm. 
by the end of the 1980s, which market had performed the best? Japan by a long way. In actual fact, Japan was then sitting on a multiple of 40 times, and the US market equivalent, I think, was low teens, maybe 12, 13 times. Mm. Okay. So the US had been rated, sure, but nothing like as much as Japan. And Japan saw a big earnings kicker. And then you get the sort of the perennial issue about Europe. Okay. So many American investors look at the European markets and say, hey, P multiples are lower. We're going to invest in Europe because it's a much cheaper market. We're value investors. If you're a value investor, look at the stocks, don't look at the markets. And any five-year period you take from 1980 onwards, the PE multiple of the European markets has been below that of Wall Street. But Wall Street has massively outperformed over that pretty much entire period. And you can even look more recently and say, you know, look at year 2000. Yet in year 2000, the P multiple on the US market was about 14, 15 times. Europe was about, what, 10, 11 times. By 2020, the US multiple had gone up to 35 times. So big, big outperformance. Valuations, in other words, PEs at the macro level, absolutely mean nothing. And what drives PEs, as we show in the book Capital Wars, is liquidity and positioning. And how you make money in the long term out of equity markets is to understand the positioning of investors. What you want to do is to buy when effectively people are out of the markets, when they've got very, very low equity exposure relative to the norm, and you want to be selling when they've got very high equity exposure. Where they are right now, just for you know a heads up, is really globally that around neutral levels in terms of normal benchmarks, okay? But where they are significantly underweighted is in the Chinese markets relative to norms and in some of the Asian markets, which have been, have obviously got a China spillover effect. And that's where you've seen the, the biggest anomalies. So let me, maybe I'll just kind of go through what you're talking about. The first one is be careful about listening to what people say, particularly central bankers, watch what they do. It reminds me of when I started. Don't as a, read I, their lips. Yeah, exactly. Wash their hands. Yeah, when I started as an analyst in '93, I was a bank analyst, so I was, you know, following the Thai bank sector as it went into its boom, you know, and its final boom, let's say, before it then went bust and then recapitalized. So I learned a lot in my first ten years of that. But you know, young analysts nowadays they go to the companies to get so much information, and they asked me about. It. I said, I. I swear for the first 10 years as an analyst, I, I pretty much almost never went to the company because I thought either they're going to mislead me because they don't know what they're talking about, or they're going to just mislead me by lying to me. And I just saw many cases where, you know, that was the case. And there was a there was a, a report in Thailand called the Nukun Commission, which was set up to investigate the collapse of the Thai bond. And one of the findings of the commission was that the Bank of Thailand had misled the public by not disclosing the forward positions, you know, and what was happening. So they were able to show that they had U.S. dollar foreign reserves of about 40 billion U.S. dollars, when in fact, that had already been broken down by March of 1997, that had already come down to about 6 billion, but they didn't disclose it in a way that the market could understand it. So it was only insiders, hedge funds, other people that were figuring it out. And then they pushed them to the wall. So that's a great lesson. 
you know, don't believe what people are saying, watch what they're doing. The second one is ignoring currencies. And that's an important one because a lot of people are investing globally nowadays and you can get all your stock calls right and the, you know, all kinds of things right. You get the currency wrong and you're wiped out as you've explained about Japan. The other third part that you've talked about is that multiples and valuation measures can be distorted. And they're oftentimes distorted on a macro level because of liquidity positioning. Also, you know, you can say interest rates potentially can be distorting to PE multiples. So what you're telling us is, you know, pay attention to PE multiples, maybe on a company level, but PE multiples are not such a great measure when you're looking at the overall macro picture. And those are some of the things that you said. Is there anything else you would add to that? Not really. I think that it's really a question in terms of macro investing, of understanding where you are on the liquidity cycle and where investors are positioned. Are they already discounting that or, or investing for that or not? Yep. And, you know, at the moment, you've got this. I mean, you've actually got a clamor in markets right now to predict bad news in a way that I've never seen before. Okay. And that's an unusual feature. But what, it what do you mean by tells that? You. Well, I mean that, you know, what we're being told by economists the whole time is that we're about to go into a deep recession. And there is an eagerness to sort of outbid your competitor by saying it's going to be a deeper and deeper recession. Now, I think there's a number of features which are distorting many of the indicators, which are saying that perhaps things look a lot worse than they really are. But what you see is evidence from corporations, particularly the recent run of results in the US, which actually seem to give a much better tenor to what's happening to the economy, seems mm -hmm. to be more robust. But economists, are, you know, they're unremitting in the sense they're saying, oh, it's going to get worse. It's always next next quarter, whatever. So they keep pushing their recession forecasts out and bet they're getting deeper and deeper. And I think that that's not really the issue right now. The issue in markets, curiously, is not the business cycle, because I think the markets probably investors are already there. They understand that things are going to get tougher. What's really important to understand is, first of all, the liquidity cycle. And as I said earlier on, policymakers don't want to create a banking crisis right now. It's in no one's interest. In actual fact, it will be a disaster if this happened. So mm. they're going to do all they can to prevent banks failing. That means more liquidity being put into the system. So I think that's, you know, that's an important thing. And the other factor above all is look at inflation. Inflation, in my experience, has been a huge, huge negative for financial market investment. Whenever you get inflation picking up, financial markets do badly. And that's true, not just in the period since the 1980s, when inflation has generally been going down with a few blips. It's also true in the 1970s. There was a big, big move out of financial assets in the 70s with raging inflation. People moved into real assets. This bull market that we've experienced since 1980 has got a lot to do with falling inflation. Equity markets are best valued against inflation, not against bonds. If we're in a situation where inflation even temporarily tumbles at the back end of this year down towards where central banks have been targeting, I think equity markets will see a big re-rating. That may be a temporary one if inflation picks up again, but I think that's coming. And if you look around the world, parche the bad news in the UK, of course, where you've got still over 10% inflation, but the UK is a very inflation-sensitive economy. If you look around the world generally, Asia is an extremely good example. But look at the latest numbers coming out of Brazil, further evidence 
that inflation is coming down quite significantly. And I think you can say, okay, maybe it's a bit sticky, but the reality is the direction of change is down. By the back end of this year, the Fed may even be able to hit or even beat its 2% target. Wow. And that's uh, something I, I do a monthly inflation report and I talk about it here on the podcast and then I have downloads so people can download that data. But what I said is US inflation, I think could be down at three to 4% by the end of this year. And that, as you're saying, is relatively positive for equity markets. And if we get some teetering banks or some other liquidity issues, you could see some reversal in policy from the Fed or some other way of making sure that they've got liquidity injected into the system. And all of a sudden, the equity markets perform much better than people had thought. Is that that's what you're thinking? Exactly. Exactly correct. And if you look at what's going on right now in terms of stock markets, they seem to be defying the bears. They're trying to sort of claw their way higher. And I think you can see that with some of the longer duration investments, things like technology, for example, they're moving up, they're beating people's expectations in terms of what the market should do, defying gravity in the words of many people. But actually what this is really telling us is that liquidity is coming back and maybe inflation is coming down. And that's because these are what in bond speak are called long duration investments. These are the things that should do well in that environment. Mm. All right, last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? In investment terms? Well, I guess in anything, in investment or in your own life, personal. I think the, uh, I think the, the main goal probably, and let's, let's do a, a bit of a joint one, is basically to get more people understanding that liquidity is the key thing going forward. And liquidity is likely, from a global perspective, to be the main driver of asset markets in the future. Now, one of the reasons to start to say that is that what we're looking at in the US right now is that the Federal Reserve is bailing out the banks. Mm. What the Federal Reserve is going to have to do in the next 10 years is bail out the government. But the US happens to be the cleanest shirt in the global laundry here. Okay, Other countries are far, far, far worse. So that's part of the reason I think the dollar will do well. But ultimately, there's a huge amount of liquidity coming. So if you believe that QE is dead, forget it. It's not. It's coming back. It's coming back big time. And investors have got to start to adjust their asset allocation methodologies to taking this into account. So that's a great, you know, great way to wrap up because I know you talked about that the market is a a discounting mechanism and it's it's looking into the future and in order to make money, you've got to look further ahead. I think a lot of people are stuck in, okay, Fed tightening. Okay, there's a little bit of a crisis, but we're about to go into a recession. It's going to be a disaster or that type of thing. But if you look six months ahead, basically you can see, yep, we probably have some loosening that's going to happen. And we have other factors that could potentially lead us into a situation with inflation down, with potential QE coming back, that in fact, in equity markets actually do pretty well by the end of this year. And that's not something I think people are that comfortable with right now. I think that's right. I think, you know, one of the things I think to, you know, to say is to refer to security analysis, the book written by Ben Graham, the doyon of value investors. And what does it say? You probably got Several editions, Andrew, on your shelves. There we are. There it is. There we are. Security analysis. There we are. Latest edition or whatever. You, That's an old if you, one. I got that. I got that when I was head of research at WI Car in 1995. Wow. Wow. In that book, you'll find a quote, and that quote says that in the long term, the markets are weighing machines. Okay. 
But in the near term, markets are voting machines. The votes are money. <laughs> and that's the important question. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss, but so much more to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Michael, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, just watch the markets. That's the key thing to do. Understand what's going on. Look at the data. Don't read central bankers' lips. Watch their hands. Exactly. What a, what a great ending. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.